Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Just three years after the federal liberal government legalized nicotine vaping products in Canada, it is now determined to unwind the legislation through a series of punishing regulations that will all but destroy the industry. Now, this is not hyperbole. There are three key aspects to what make nicotine vaping products a viable alternative to smoking. One is affordability. Vaping historically is vastly cheaper than smoking. Two is nicotine, at a satisfying level for smokers trying to quit and for vapors to stay abstinent from smoking. And three is flavors, for which a wide variety is essential for individuals seeking to find the right balance of tastes. Each of these key aspects of vaping are under assault. The Trudeau-led Liberal government announced earlier this year it plans to implement an excise tax on vaping products in 2022, which would dramatically increase cost. In addition, Health Canada has implemented regulations that, as of today, restrict nicotine concentrations in all vaping liquids sold in the country to a maximum of 20 milligrams per milliliter, which is a reduction by over half of what many vapors are used to using. And just last week, Health Canada announced what could be a death blow to the vaping industry, a punishing flavor ban that would remove every flavor from the market with the exception of tobacco, mint, and menthol. Joining us today to talk through the apparent unraveling of the legal vaping industry in Canada is Thomas Kursop, vaping advocate and retail shop owner. Thomas, thanks for coming back on RegWatch. Thanks for having me back, Brent. Well, let's start with uh, the nicotine cap. Walk our viewers through the details now that the restriction is in effect. So the uh, CG2 was published today. It's going to limit nicotine to a maximum concentration of 20 milligrams per milliliter. It will officially come into force on July 8th. So July 8th, it will be prohibited for manufacturers and distributors to disseminate nicotine levels over 20 milligrams. Vape shops have a further 15-day grace period to move out whatever product they happen to have on hand. So on July 23rd, they will lose that grace period and the consumer will no longer have access to that product. Now, nicotine being, of course, the active ingredient, which is a drug, you know, for all intents and purposes, of course, is there anybody crying any tears right now for vapors who are being forced to use less of addictive substance, you know, of an addictive, addictive substance? The only people I've seen so far who seem a upset about this are uh, traditional harm reductionists and tobacco harm reductionists and of course consumers uh they're not overly impressed but well, there's go ahead there's been nothing out of uh out of the organizations you would think that you would that people would that would want people to stop smoking uh and i haven't seen much reaction out of the government aside from you know they they're quite set in their way they believe that this will be the way to fix the problem with youth vaping. And there's the, you know, that's the crux of it. You know, it, how much of a problem is youth vaping in your opinion? Uh, statistically, if we look at youth vaping, depending on how you look at it, if you look at a past 30 day use, you're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of a 20% use rate. But past 30 day uses is, is a pretty lax term. When we talk about nicotine in, in the uh, frame of addiction or, uh, well, we'll use addiction. I've forgotten the other word. Dependency. 
if you look at a nicotine dependency test, all of those tests start asking how long after you first got out of bed did you first use nicotine, usually in the case of smoking. An answer of next Saturday at Billy's birthday party doesn't fall into that list. So where the government likes to look at 30 days, uh, an addiction specialist would look at a much smaller time frame. And in that case, you're looking at uh, between 2 and 5%. Now, Health Canada has gone to a lot of, to a great extent, to try to communicate that they believe that the epidemic of teen vaping, the rapid rise in youth use that was recorded in 2017 to 2018 into 2019, is actually stayed pretty much the same through 2019 and 20 and 20 and 21, even though there was a pandemic going on and not a lot of access that youth had to vaping products. Are, are we missing a chunk here of the real story? In fact, has you know has youth use not go, not gone down and health canada is not recognizing that health canada in this submission has referenced the uh 2018-2019 numbers now for the last five six years we have seen a relatively steady increase of nicotine use use amongst youth uh with a particular spike after 2018 access increases so of course you can expect that youth use will take a bit of an uptick. But where they kind of dropped the narrative is the 2020 CTNS, the Canadian Tobacco and Nicotine Survey, they pre-released a portion of that through a government publication called The Daily. And in that, it showed that nicotine use amongst youth had actually dropped by one percentage point. So we went from a 15% usage rate in the 2018-2019 numbers to a 14% usage rate in the 2020-2021 numbers. But they don't, I don't see that referenced in these documents. Now, they did make passing reference in like a press release that it appears that it may be plateauing. But as far as all of their cal calculations supporting their restrictions, both the nicotine and the flavor ban, no, they stick to those higher 2018-2019 numbers. So let's jump into the flavor ban so we can at least get it out there. And then we'll start talking about, you know, the overall picture once you combine everything and as well, the taxes. So the flavor ban being the big news that came out last week. Thomas, how bad is it? If from a tactical standpoint, or if I was on the other side, I would refer to it as brilliant. Uh, from my side, it's grim. It's very grim. There are very few workarounds. There are very few giveaways. Uh, what they have done is the first thing they did is they said they were going to ban all sweeteners on the market. So in North America, the consumer taste is high to sweetener. So almost every e-liquid on the market uses sweeteners. Now that would have been a heavy blow in and of itself, but then they moved into this flavor regulation where they have said they are going to prohibit all flavors except for tobacco, mint, and menthol. As we get past that, they actually dictated that we could only make those flavors with a certain number of chemical compounds. Now, most folks, when they think of flavoring an e-liquid, they are thinking of commercially available flavors from food-grade flavoring agencies like uh, Flavor Art or Capella. Those flavorings are actually may consist of five compounds or they may consist of over a hundred compounds to get that flavoring out. 
we have been restricted to 40 compounds for tobacco and 42 compounds for mint and menthol. And that's going to have a significant impact on what's available to the market. You will not have 20 tobacco flavors to pick from next year if this goes through. If you're lucky, you will have three to five tobacco flavors. You won't have 50 mint and menthol flavors. You might have half a dozen. So it is, it is very tight. This regulation is locked down. They, they put a lot of thought into it, and it's going to be very effective for what they want to do. Now, acts, you know, restricting, well, I guess banning, right? Banning sugar and all artificial sweeteners. Does that mean then that the government of Canada is saying that, you know, vaping has to be an unpleasant experience? Actually, that is exactly what they said. If you go into the regulatory impact analysis statement for these regulations, and every time they put regulations, they have to make this document where they have to explain what they intend to achieve, how they intend to achieve it, and why they are setting it up the way they are. So if we go into to how they intend to achieve it, there's actually, they talk about initiating professionals to test this liquid for sensory perceptions. So taste, smell, and uh, other senses. So like a cooling agent is a big thing in vaping right now where they use WS-23 to simulate a chill in the e-liquid. There will actually be somebody at Health Canada whose job it is to test these liquids to see if they taste good, to see if they have a chill, to see if they're sweet. And yes, very much so. The intent is this is, they do not want these products to taste appealing in any way, shape, or form to a youth. But unfortunately, that also means to an adult because taste buds are a shared experience between the two. So, I mean, that's pretty draconian to say that in order to keep youth away from this product, it must taste horrible to the intended user who's the legal user of the product, which is an adult Canadian. That is correct. And, and unfortunately, I don't see where it's going to meet their intended goal. Uh, because the reality is, is this market only became legal in 2018. Prior to that, we were considered gray. So most e-liquids were not made in manufacturing facilities. They were made in, in home facilities. So you might have had a very clean room in a house, but the reality is, is all of that manufacturing went on in an off-market location. The knowledge required to, to create that product hasn't left the consumer base. It hasn't left those outside of the industry. So the first thing that happens when you ban a product that has huge consumer demand, somebody's going to come in and fill that demand. So essentially what this law is going to do is it's going to put all of the legal shops, the, the compliant shops, the guys who want to do it right, all of a sudden they're going to be very restricted in what they can offer the consumer. But the guy down the street who's selling things out of his van, he, he can make whatever he wants. And there will be a certain segment of the consumer population that avails themselves of that, of that opportunity. Uh, <laughs> well, when we first started covering this uh, issue back in 2015, and of course, we've had two major rounds of sit-down interviews with the Director General of the Tobacco Control Directorate at Health Canada. So when they're, you know, they're fully aware of these issues in terms of 
keeping, you know, the bathtub juice, you know, uh, you know, out, I mean, or made in the garage, that kind of thing in a drum. Um, that was a real concern. That was like a, a, a prime reason to bring uh, the TVPA in, to bring vaping products in from the cold, so to speak, into a regulated environment. That is correct. You can't regulate a black market. You can't, you can't say that a product that is currently illegal is more illegal. And you can't tell it in which manner it is allowed to be illegal. So as soon as you drive this product out of the regulated market, you can't control who is doing what. And the mindset that says, I'm going to make this illegal product to sell to consumers is not the mindset that is likely to care about the age of those consumers. They won't go out and buy a $5,000 ID scanner to make sure that they're, they're only selling to adults. Uh, the other issue that we're going to run into is self-adulteration. So consumers who want flavors will find a way to get flavors. If we ban them, consumers have this rough idea that all e-liquids are made with food-grade flavoring. So very likely what you're going to see is some of the more brave will buy unflavored e-liquid and then they'll just run out and they'll get a product something like this. And they'll, it, I've read about it in papers before we got legalization. They were squirting these products into e-liquid to get a flavor. And the problem with that is not all food-grade flavorings can be used for inhalation. If they pick up a product that's oil-based, they can get lipoid pneumonia, which is going to be very similar to that illness that we saw out of the States in 2019. And all of a sudden, we're going to have Canadian consumers in the hospital. So I, when we create these, these regulations with very little thought beyond keeping these products out of the hands of children, we just created a whole host of safety problems, regulatory problems, and perhaps life-impacting problems now for it's, the Canadian user base. It's a dark question, Thomas, but um, you have to imagine that Health Canada would know that that's one of the you know, the results that could happen from this is this black market, the adulterated products, and that would create the opportunity for illness to happen. Let's just say if young people do and end up using products that, you know, are no longer legally manufactured. So is, is there some calculation there that maybe a few additional sick it, people might, might help justify their argument here? Yes, actually there is in the RIAS, there is what they call the cost, uh, cost-benefit analysis statement, I think. I might have the wording mixed up. But what it is, is, a, is they run a model into which they put various knowns and assumptions into the system, and they try to figure out monetarily whether they're going to gain in life years or lose life years. And the idea is to come up with a model that is neutral so that they are trying to impact as many youth as possible while negatively impacting as many adults as, poss or as possible or limiting that negative impact. The problem with these analyses is when you get into it, some of their base numbers, I don't know where they got them. Uh, in particular, they have a statement that they assumed the morbidity and mortality rate of vaping was 20% that of smoking. 
Now, I cannot find anywhere in any literature where that number has ever been published. The closest I have is the Royal College of Physicians, Public Health England. They have been publishing repeatedly for seven years now that the vaping rates, the, the harm experienced from vaping is unlikely to exceed 5% that of combustible products and may well be less than that. So that we're looking at a maximum 5% harm as opposed to a stated 20% morbidity and mortality. So their numbers, I, I don't know how accurate their, their cost-benefit analysis is going to be. And in their RIAs, they openly stated that they understood some of these problems were going to come. They have said that they expect tobacco companies will recoup losses for their vaping products through increased cigarette sales. They stated that dual users, a portion of them will go back to being full-time smokers. Dual users are transitioners. We always talk about them like they're a negative. They're on a path. You start as a dual user. Well, we certainly, maybe you'd yeah, that's right. I mean, they've totally paid lip service to the fact that you don't just go from smoker to vapor in one fell swoop and they don't even recognize right. that anyhow. So there's always a transition period. Um, even from back when we first interviewed Dr. Stanton Lance back in 2016, that was very frustrating. The amount of, uh, the amount of light he put on the dual user issue. I've always felt that that's a red herring. I, I thought so too. The, the problem is, is, is it goes back to the, the base assumption amongst tobacco control that there's no such thing as a safe amount of tobacco use. So any tobacco use is verboten. Therefore, if you are partially smoking, partially vaping, the anticipation is you will take the full damage as if you were just a smoker. The problem is, is when we're talking about people who are trying to quit, they are trying. It's, it's a process. You have to start at one end and get to the other. And if you write them off too quick, they're, they're smokers. They'll just say, okay, fine, and they'll go back to smoking. And unfortunately, I saw a lot of that in the uh, regulatory impact analysis statement for these regulations. It's like Health Canada said, yeah, we get it. It's going to happen, and we're okay with it. It's uh, it's actually quite amazing, is it not? We're going to just take a look over here at our good friend Jim McDonald in Vaping 360 and some of the coverage that um, he provided on this. And I noticed, uh, Thomas, that he's using some of your material right off of the bat. Yeah, uh, he's picked up some of my stuff on, on and off. Uh, I'm not sure specifically which one we're talking about I'm here. I'm showing but it right now. You should be able to see okay. it. Yeah, just, uh, well, it's in a couple of different places, but, you know, right off yeah. the bat, your notice with regards to uh, the nicotine. It, I highly recommend, I haven't got this curated yet to the website, so there's a, a, a batch that I have to get out here in the next couple of days, uh, but this will be one of them. But just, you know, search, uh, if you want, Canada will prohibit most vape flavors next year. Jim McDonald on Vaping 360. It's excellent. And I just wanted to jump to... Um, because you were talking about the costs, and this is one that uh, people have been pointing out. Revenue lost as a result of a flavor ban will be offset by an increase in tobacco purchases by those who return to smoking. And that's right in the Gazette. Yep. And it, 
Well, actually, if you go back to the Gazette for the nicotine from December, mm -hmm. this RIAS is almost a photocopy with specific terms replaced. So this is not the first time they, they've said that they're okay with increased smoking and, and by effect, increased smoking death. They said it in December. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, it boggles my mind that a public health agency would openly say in a published document, we are okay with Canadians smoking. I, I had to stop reading this document like four times. It just, I, I, it would make me so angry. I couldn't think straight and I had to go away and come back. It's, it's, it's bizarre. It's otherworldly. When we did uh, uh, the coverage back in December, and again, you dipped into it in January and, and probably in February too as well, the number was like 25% of current users of 50, 50 MG, uh, 20, 25% would end up going back to smoking and not make the switch down in the 20. Yep. It's, 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 it's just, it's amazing. And when we look at the, the, it, this would be one thing if this was the first time this was proposed, if we had nowhere else to look at, and we assume that just by doing these acts, the kids would just miraculously decide that they're going to toe the line, not be little rebels and just do what they're told. But we don't have that. Nova Scotia went through all of this last year. They banned flavors. They capped nicotine. They put a 50 cents per milliliter tax on, on the product. And not three months later, we had this report coming out of the C-Store Association that said cigarette sales had jumped 20-some percent. So what do we expect? San Francisco banned flavors in 2018, and they've gotten to the point now where they've had a series of surveys on smoking, and it turned out the youth smoking doubled after they cut the flavors. Yeah, we've got that. I've got that up here right now. That's Dr. Abigail Friedman um, and her work, A Difference in Differences Analysis of Youth Smoking and a Ban on Sales of Flavored Tobacco Products in uh, San Francisco, California. The odds, you know, doubled uh, for use of uh, for going back to smoking or trying smoking. Yeah. The, the, the fundamental thing is, is and, and nobody likes to talk about it, youth chase after adult products, particularly your teenagers. And the drive for that is every teenager wants to be free. They want to be at that stage where they can use the alcohol and they can go out and do the things that we tell them they're not allowed to do. If you look at uh, Canada's drinking statistics, we have more drinkers in Canada than we have vapors under the age of 18. 10% uh, of our youth are drinking to the point where they're blowing through the low-risk drinking guidelines. They're drinking to excess. They're, black, they're, they're drinking until they're drunk, blacking out. We don't talk about that. I don't see anybody whipping into my local liquor store and saying, get that birthday cake flavored vodka off the shelf. But societally, we've accepted it. We have safe grads. We, oh, it's grad time. The kids are going to drink. Well, we got to have a grown-up come and drive them home at night. Nobody's telling them not to do it. Uh, but when it comes to nicotine, societally, that is not as well accepted. And therefore, this type of, of regimen, of, of regulation, is accepted.
it's so difficult to play the game. Imagine if this was applied to cannabis, right? For there wouldn't be cannabis. And actually, I actually gave a warning to a cannabis manufacturer this weekend because if you go back to the Gazette, the very next section after vaping was cannabis. And they're talking about flavored cannabis vapes. And if you read that, if you take the time to actually go in and look, it's exactly the same regulations we used to have before they added all of these new exempt items to enforce the flavor ban. Uh, so it's it's odd to me because it, it seems like there's there's not a lot of thought into it. It's bad, so we're going to recreate what we did in the past, and then we're going to step down harder. And all I see coming out of it is increased smoking rates, vape uh, shops going out of business, going back to Nova Scotia. Fifty percent of the shops in Nova Scotia went out of or just under fifty percent went out of business the month after that ban went in. A portion hung out while they tried to get a legal ramification through to try and prevent it from happening. But most of them are not going to make it unless they have a change in the law. So is the Canadian vaping industry as a whole across the country, is it going to make it with, with the flavor ban? There's two ways of looking at this. Vaping will not go away. That is, that is the fact. Vaping is out of the bag. You're not getting it back in. The legal market, however, is going to look significantly different should these regulations come to pass. Uh, the nicotine regulation won't hit the market as much because of the mechanics of delivery. Most people will compensate. It will be harder to convert new users, but existing users, will, they'll, they will adjust. The flavor ban, on the other hand, now we're talking to the only source of appeal we have left because we are prohibited from talking about efficacy and safety and relative risk. The only thing we were able to market vaping on is the fact that it smells better, it tastes better, and it costs less. And we're just going to go through and take care of all three of those things. And what will happen is you won't be able to convert people. And I predict personally, and this is my personal opinion, it would not surprise me to see at least an 80% reduction in the independent vape market within the first year of a flavor prohibition. 80%. That's, that's my knee jerk. And I would say that would be the low number. And there's like 1400 vape shops in Canada. The industry is like what? 1.24 billion. Yes. And, and that's, and that, that retail will move to the black market, uh, a good portion of it. And what doesn't move to the black market will move to the tobacco market. Do you have some, uh, an opinion on the politics around this? I think the politics around this are no different than standard politics. You have a narrative. That narrative has been applied to increase the negative perception and the fear around vaping. As a result, concerned mothers and concerned health organizations have been lobbying the government very hard. At their base, any politician wants the same thing that any other employee wants. They want a quiet day. 
So when these organizations phone them three, four times a day, when the mothers are upset, when the news is putting out articles talking about people dying in other countries, politicians get to the point where they have to do something. They don't have to do something effective. They just have to do something. And the noise levels drop, their lives get more peaceful and off they go. I know that a lot of people would like to subscribe this to one party or the other. I don't tend to roll with that. I see it as we created a moral panic. And there are many entities to blame for that. I can look to government action, press action, uh, health body action. All of these things created this massive fear around this product. And in response to that panic, the government reacted. What about university researcher action? We can absolutely talk about that because at the root of our panic, prior to 2019, when you talked to Health Canada, they had a more nuanced approach to vaping. They would say, we recognize the potential for this product to help adult smokers. And then in early 2019, we had a professor out of uh, University of Waterloo had some very serious press time where he was talking about a study that had yet to be published in which he said two quotes that still stick with me to this day. The first quote was that for the first time in many years, Canadian youth smoking had increased. The second quote was, should we be worried Damn right we should. Now, it turned out that when that paper was finally published, most academics looked at it and started scratching their heads because it didn't match with what immediately followed from StatsCan's data in which youth smoking had dropped. And in 2020, that particular professor had to issue a correction to that publication stating that he had made an error and that you smoking had dropped, it had not risen. But you can, of course, you can say then, his name on our show. You can say his name on our show, uh, Thomas, because we, you know, we broke, we released that leaked uh, paper. Um, it's Dr. David Hammett at, from the University yes, of Waterloo. Yeah. yeah. That's tragic because the government of Canada, and that was actually in the fall of 2018, and then that rolled into 2019 when, yeah. when these consultations dropped which is another issue that I've got because we're operating right now. These regulations are dropping right now that are destroying the industry. The consultation process for them was in the spring of 2019. Now I do understand that we had had the coronavirus come in into play and it caused, you know, some problems, but the regulator, in my opinion, should have to go back and catch up on, on, on that consultation, catch up on the data, take a look at what's going on now instead of instead of it being frozen in time two years ago. I think, I think part of the problem was who Dr. Hammond is. Mm. He's very well respected in his field. He is actually a member, or I don't know if they're still sitting, but he was a member of the Canadian Advisory Board on Vaping Products. So when he comes forward, he's already got that relationship with the regulator in respect to vaping products. When he makes a mistake like that, he speaks with the authority of a demigod. He has weight. 
So when he made that mistake and he was so prominent in our news, repeating that error, the problem came when he issued his correction. We did not have that weight of notification going out to the public saying, hang on a second, we got it wrong last year. We're sorry, our bad. Uh, and yes, in my opinion, the vast majority of the regulations we are facing today have at least in part their root in that very paper. That paper was where I started to see Health Canada's perspective on vaping shift, and I haven't seen it shift back. So Dr. Hammond had shared that early sneak peek uh, of those stats in October of 2018. So vaping products became legal in this country in May of 2018. So six months later, you know, all, all of a yeah. sudden it's, it, the unwinding began then. At the start in our lead, I said it's been three years since they made it legal. They were un starting to undo that legislation before half a year was even out. Yeah, it's it's the timeline for me gets confusing because it's it's from my perspective every day is just a wall of the next thing. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it, it's 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 hard to talk. It's getting to be very hard to talk about. It's it's frustrating. It's disappointing. It's what do I tell my sixty-year-old customer who's using thirty-five milligram? frost which tastes like toothpaste i don't like toothpaste i think toothpaste is disgusting but she loves it it's what got her off of cigarettes this week i had to tell her look on the 23rd you need to be down to 20 milligrams we need to start working on reducing your nicotine count her first thing her first response was why i'm not smoking and i had to tell her it's because the government doesn't care if you're smoking or not we have to drop your nicotine. And next time she's in, I have to tell her that we're going to have to, we may have to find a different flavor for you to vape. And her answer is going to, her first question is going to be, but why I'm not smoking? And I'm going to have to tell her again, the government doesn't care that you are not smoking anymore. They literally said that in their regulatory impact analysis statement, they expect that you may very well be one of these people who goes back to smoking. You may be one of these people who gets emphysema or cancer or has a stroke so that your child who will have the benefit of being nicotine free will be nicotine free at your funeral if you happen to lose the nicotine or the smoking lottery. Sounds better. Yeah, it, I mean, it's what's interesting is that during the pandemic, the government didn't seem to really care at all about if anybody got their cancer treatments, if anybody got, you know, misdiagnosed or not diagnosed with cancer. I mean, the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who didn't get the medical attention they needed and had nothing to do with nicotine, um, you, the, you know, they were just, forget it. You know, it was just not a part of the equation for them. So, I mean, should we be surprised that they've got such a... Well, my answer is the distraction is over. 
No, they but, had an excuse. Right, but the they didn't care. Gone. But they didn't care about cancer patients then, no matter how they got their cancer. Why? Why should we expect that they really care about a smoker getting cancer? Well, the truth is, is they haven't cared about smokers getting cancer for a long time because the numbers haven't dropped. It, it's it's the diff, it's it's the epidemic. The difference between an epidemic and a statistic, right? Or or the uh, the concern and the statistic. One person dies. It's a tragedy. 48,000 die every year. It's a statistic. And the reality is, is most of the population has become very cold towards smoking statistics. Our, everything in our society says that smokers aren't worthy, that they're not worth our time, that they're not worth our concern. And now that we have this product that can make them ex-smokers, well, all that happens is it just rolls over and congratulations, you quit smoking, I hate you anyway. Because it looks like you're still smoking. Uh, it's a personal thing and I tend to get torn off on a rant about it. So I try not to discuss it too much and stick to the, to the legislation. So I used to ask this question a lot. It was one of my go-to hard questions when I was interviewing somebody from the industry that, you know, is at the retail level, basically. We used to hear all the time when I would talk to them, I'd say, look, you know, the government isn't really convinced that um, you aren't interested in building a new customer base because all businesses, you know, need to grow. And the answer used to be, rightly so, was that, look, you know, we're, we're a different kind of business. You know, we're advocates. We're here to transition people off of smoking. And if we can get every single existing smoker today to switch over to vaping, I'll be happy to close down my store, um, go out of no. business, job all done. No. But, you know, the youth issue is really all about that acquiring new customers. And, and I'm surprised well, Health Canada has not ever said it that way, but they could have easily have said, this is, you know, the way capitalism works and, you know, the free market operates this way. It's just, you know, no matter... How much they try, they're going to, you know, there's going to be innovations that are going to try to expand the market and you need to have new users come in. And, and what they're doing here is they're basically just flipping a switch like a circuit breaker to stop yeah, that and, process. And they're, they're, they're looking at it the wrong way. And, and I'm going to say two things, and they're both contrary to public opinion. My job is to sell a harm-reduced product to people who have made a decision to use nicotine. The reality was, if, if that whole argument of if everybody quit, I go out of business. Well, if we just made it illegal, everybody would quit. No matter what you do, there will be somebody who decides they are going to use cannabis. And for the last 80 years, we've been punishing them, charging them, you know, they, they can't cross the border. And finally, the government said, well, you know what? If, if these people are going to use cannabis, no matter what we do, we should regulate it so it's safe. People have been using nicotine for tens of thousands of years. There will always be somebody who is interested in using nicotine. And if that is the case, it's my job to encourage them to use a less harmful form of nicotine than smoking. So the reality is, is yes, there will be new customers. That, that will not change. However, 
that doesn't mean that I'm in, interested in youth. And to that argument, I would respond that anybody who thinks I'm interested in selling to youth is more, to, more than welcome to come and take a look at two years worth of scanning reports that demonstrate that I have zero interest in selling to youth. They can look at my ban list where I have caught straw sales out in front of the shop and banned adults because I am not interested in children getting this product, not from me. And if Health Canada would really like to do something about youth access, the laws exist that should allow them to curtail the majority of youth access. Use them. Did, um, did advocacy overall, not just here in Canada, but also in the U.S. and say even in Europe or whatever, the whole ball of wax here. Was there a mistake made in not arguing from the start for recreational nicotine use? There were those who were arguing for rec recreational nicotine use. Generally, it wasn't an aspect that I got into, but it, it, I hate to use the word common sense because the reality is, is common sense is based on your own perceptions of the world, your own experience. And it, when they say common sense doesn't exist, they're, they're not wrong. But it doesn't take a genius to look around and figure that people have been using nicotine for this long and they're probably going to continue to use nicotine. And yes, that would be recreational nicotine. It would be no different than recreational alcohol use. We have concerns about excessive alcohol use, problematic alcohol use, and we have programs and, and things in place to try and prevent that from happening and, and help those who are in that position. We have recreational cannabis use. We have recreational caffeine use. In fact, we celebrate that. Everybody's got that coffee mug sitting in the shelf at work that says, don't talk to me until the line gets down to here. Why? Because that's a, that's a sign of dependency. I am not happy until I've had this much caffeine. But we celebrate that as a society. So why would nicotine be any different? So I can't let uh, a slag on common sense, uh, you know, come on the show without me at least addressing it. Common sense is actually rooted in the natural things of human beings. So if you're making a point about humans' propensity to gravitate towards natural addictive substances, that actually is an accurate way to use common sense because that is, you know, it's rooted in that kind yeah. of stuff. It doesn't. Yeah, not, that's true. It's not rooted in politics. It's rooted in nature. Is generally yeah, don't touch the fire. It's hot. Is common sense. That's common sense. But we, but there we tend to also apply common sense to a lot of more complex things where where it's not really common sense. I look at a an industrial power boiler, and I can identify the bits and pieces. And if you can't, I my I've heard people well, use your common sense. That's where the water comes out. Well, if you've never dealt with it, you don't know. So, Thomas, we've got then the trifecta here. There's an excise tax that the federal liberals have promised for next year. They promised that in this year's budget. And we just had Ian Irvine, great economist from Concordia University, on just last week. And, I mean, it, it doesn't look good. It's not, as say, as bad, say, maybe as Nova Scotia's was, but it's going to be bad. And it's certainly going to 
decrease, which is what was the thing that got me onto vaping, which was the cost. The cost of cigarettes just got way too much. I was $9,000 a year or something ridiculous like that in a two pack a day habit. I'd like to also point out too, that I don't think I've ever once vaped a tobacco flavor. So I, I don't fit in the mold at all. Like, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. And so the government is regulating my sensory perceptions and, uh, and, is, and is coming down and saying what certain flavors I can and cannot have in a substance that absolutely keeps me off smoking. And, you yeah, know, I'm, a, lot of, a lot of our viewers don't know this, but, you know, I hit, I hit a real troubling spot in like 2017, maybe late early 2018. I kind of had enough almost even of just the government and the pressure, you know, on this whole issue. And I ended up dual using for a little while. And, um, yep. you know, and I had to, and, and it was astonishing um, how that happened. And boy, it, there was a certain muscle though that I had from the first time quitting. Um, and because I was vaping, I, I was able to just turn it off. But boy, you know, I mean, if there wasn't vaping, I'd still be smoking. Me too. I was, if you'd have caught me seven years ago, eight years ago now, maybe I'd have told you they were going to bury me with a pack of cigarettes in my pocket. I'd already tried everything there was. I had written it off. I'd listened to all their messaging about how I was going to kill myself and everybody within 50 feet of me. And I just accepted that fact. Smokers are fatalistic. The vast majority of them if you ask them, they'll just tell you, yeah, I'm probably going to sick and I'm probably going to die, but that's not happening this afternoon. So off we go. Right. Is when there gonna, we, sorry, go ahead. When we start talking about the flavors, the reality is, is very few adults use tobacco. Now their statistics say, oh, 20% of adult, adults use tobacco, twice as many as youth uh, or 10 versus 5% or whatever it is. I'm telling you, in my shop, it's not that way. Less than 10% are using tobacco. Nobody's using unflavored except one old guy, and that's what he likes, and he's the only reason it's in the shop. 80 to 90% of my sales are fruit-flavored product. And I've already determined and demonstrated, I'm not selling to youth. So what do you do, right? It's, it's, it's not going to be good. And taxation, well, you know, taxation's great and all wonderful and the government makes money. There's a certain level of legitimacy and protection that you get with taxation because once the government's in your back pocket, they tend not to want to hurt you too much. But the reality is, is by the time we get to the taxation discussion, there will be no tax because you cannot tax a black market and there will be almost no legitimate industry left. So let me, let me try to see if I can map this out. And it's something, something I really want to get at over our coverage here, which is, you know, our last stand coverage. It really truly is the last stand. And that is, okay, so if the tobacco harm reduction argument is not working with government, um, the vaping saves lives aspect and, and so forth. I'm not saying it, it won't work. I'm not saying that it's not, you know, something that you still have to hammer home, but we just have to acknowledge that it might not actually be working or they've calculated it and, and, and said they're not interested. I'm still stuck in a, in a different kind of argument now. And that is, it's hard. It's just like, I feel like there's something so wrong from a business level 
that you've got, you know, an over $1 billion a year industry that, that the, the government enticed them in uh, through the promise of a regulated market. A regulated market doesn't just protect consumers. It also provides a stable regulatory framework for business. And all, yeah. all of the businesses in the families, the, the taxes, the, the, the real estate, I mean, all, you know, 1,400 vape shops, that's 1,400 leases, that's 1,400 more places that are going to be boarded up or, you know, not, not leased right away. So, you know, this whole thing that it seems that government, Health Canada and the federal liberal government are, are choosing this narrow view of this issue and it's willing to actually disregard its responsibility as a government and a regulator to regulate stable markets and say they should be protecting vaping not like any other market they've legalized this market people have borrowed money have invested have done all these things and and the, the regulatory apparatus has not just is not just not protecting them it's abusing them and, and outright casting them aside. And even from a regulatory point of view, that, that's wrong. I'm not surprised. I'm not shocked. My eyes aren't wide. Because really, when you boil it down and look at it, any government that says they are willing to let a portion of their population die a horrible, miserable death you really think they care about a business? Hmm. They've made their statement and everything else is below that level. We have accepted that people will go back to smoking. We know that 50% of them will die prematurely because that's the statistic our government tells us every year. We accept the Canadian citizens are going to get very sick and die well of course they don't care about your business you're still well, no. alive uh, fair enough but look look I, look I, here's my point here is, is that the government's lost right that's it's lost i'm just saying like the rest of the of the country and all of the other businesses in every other industry if you fall for some reason again you know on the opposite side like woe be you if your product isn't good for teenagers and they find a taste for it yep Right? Woe be you. Oh, I think you. the cannabis industry is about to find that out. I can see it coming. The arguments are all the same, Brent. They're making the same arguments about flavored cannabis this week that they were making about us four years ago. Yeah, but they're I, not I making. They're not, the but, the, but the flavor is is ancillary to the nicotine. The real argument is against the nicotine. That's what they're. Yeah. That's where it is. And so we don't hear that about THC. The active ingredient in cannabis does not seem to uh, be raising any kind of an ire with, with the government. I've always said, be wary of a government that would, that prefers its citizens stoned. Right? So, you know, you bite less where nicotine is a little bit of a different kind of a, of an active substance, of course, than, than cannabis is. But is, look, I'm throwing this out there. We've got a late show here tonight. So, and this isn't necessarily, you know, perfectly formed, but, Let's just say that, let's just say there might be, just for the sake of creativity, okay. is there not an age discrimination going on here? Is Health Canada not yes. discriminating? Is there not, a, because maybe the charter, 
you, you know, I've heard your opinion on this, that maybe the charter issue isn't necessarily going to really stand up because they are leaving some vaping in place for those wretched yep. smokers and vapors that want to continue a disgusting habit like vaping, right? It's basically what they're saying. And it's going to taste like crap and you've got, you know, blah, 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 right? So if a charter challenge on that manner uh, doesn't work, I'm just being creative. Is there not an age discrimination going on here? Because they've clearly said they're favoring uh, one age group over another. Yes. Uh, they have They have made it very clear that adults harm reduction will be forgotten or, or overlooked at the, at, for the trying to think of how to word it. And I've lost it. They're going to walk away from adult smoker because they're concerned about youth nicotine exposure. And, and keep uh, in mind, they made this product legal. So they said health Canada said that this product is more than safe enough for us to yes. legalize, sell yes. it across the country at retail so any sure. issues about it really not being safe is really not correct. Otherwise, Health Canada scientists should all be fired. True. It, look, age, tobacco harm reduction and harm in general for most products is not age specific. It can't be safe for the guy who's 30, but deadly for the guy who's 16. It can't be a means of less harmful consumption for the guy who's 30 and not be less harmful consumption for the guy who's 13. The reality is a 13-year-old kid who's smoking is a 13-year-old kid who's smoking. He's inhaling smoke. An adult, same thing. There's no difference. It, the, it, it frustrates me. I, I, I'm, I'm actually at a loss for words just just from our conversation, right? I'm right back to where I was when I was reading these documents. It's, it's just literally mind blowing. Uh, I, I, I have no words when, when I look and I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out the government's logic and what they're doing. We must save the children. We must, but the reality is, is we don't talk about children smoking anymore. When was the last time you saw a news article that showed a kid smoking a cigarette on a corner? They still do. They don't do it in the numbers they used to. In fact, our youth smoking rate is the lowest it's ever been. But we don't talk about youth smoking. We don't talk about youth suicide rates. We don't talk about texting and driving. We don't talk about why our youth are using their mother's prescription drugs at rates that are much higher than they've ever been. Nobody cares about the safety of youth, at least to my opinion, from visibly what I can see. I see no efforts for all of these things that are harming our youth, except for nicotine which is probably one of the least harmful things they're doing. If my son was using nicotine, I would be upset as a parent. If my son was using opioids, I would be absolutely terrified. And in there is, is the fundamental difference when it comes to youth. If you are concerned for the well-being of our youth, 
There are many things our youth are doing today that we should be very, very concerned about. And we're distracted by nicotine. Yeah, I would say you've got, I'd say you got that right on the money. That really is. Well, Thomas, look, um, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. I know that you've been doing a lot of talking about this over the last couple of days and just had to rip the Band-Aid off here again and, and, and bring it out there. Is there any last word that you want to say? Because obviously you know our audience and a lot of them, you know, of course, are in the industry and a lot of them are very upset right now. Right now, the most important thing that any advocate or vape shop owner could do would be to encourage your consumers to, first of all, sign the federal petition that is currently available until the end of the month, which discusses nicotine and adult access. It can be found on the government website. If you Google Government of Canada e-petition nicotine or uh, vaping, it will pop up. The second thing you need to do is encourage your consumers to provide feedback for this proposed flavor restriction. We have 70 days left as part of the consultation to these regulations to give our feedback. As a vendor, your word carries less weight than a consumer. Consumers need to be encouraged to provide this feedback either in writing to an email address that I can provide at a later date. I'll put it in the comments underneath this. Uh, they can respond via email to, uh, I'll put that in the comments because I'll screw it up if I try to say it. Excellent. Or they can go to a, a submission assistance website like www.reducetheharm.ca where it will take you through an, an email. If you use that measure, I would ask the consumers inject a paragraph after the salutation with their own story to make that email theirs. This is the most important thing that we have to do right now. Consumers need to stand up and speak to protect their access to the product that they need. And as vendors, we need to make sure that they have that opportunity and that they are encouraged to do so. Well, that's excellent, Thomas. And thank you very much for coming back on the show. Thanks for putting that information down there in the comments area. And we'll be, I'll be cleaning this up and releasing it on Facebook tomorrow at some point, and then we'll push it out widely too as well. So we'll include that information. So thanks again, Thomas. No worries. You have yourself a great night, Brenton. Thanks for having me. All right. You too. Just stay right there. Well, that is it for this edition of RegWatch. Before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com. And consider making a financial contribution to our vaping coverage. It's easy. Just dig in your wallet and find a few dollars and toss them our way. You'll be happy you did, and so will we. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. For RegulatorWatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.